Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled Caremongering, Preparing to Help. In this episode, we'll be discussing the very Canadian concept of caremongering. What is it? How did it come to be? And what does it mean for societal involvement in emergency management? We'll also be sharing the story of one individual who made the transition from bystander to responder and PPE supplier for medical facilities by retooling his robotics lab on the fly. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. One of the things we know about initial human behavior in disaster is that there is often emergent social organizations who want to help. Whether this is spontaneous volunteers or extending agencies, there are often offers of assistance that are difficult to integrate into traditional command and control structures. Sometimes this leads to resources being left on the table. But in Canada, during the initial days of the COVID response, it led to a phenomenon called caremongering. Josh, what is caremongering? Well, it's a social movement that some have described as being uniquely Canadian in its roots. It's essentially the opposite of fear mongering. So during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, several social media movements began that attempted to organize community responses in the face of social distancing, which at the time was a new concept for many people. It took shape as neighbors helping deliver groceries, people with IT savvy helping support uh, folks setting up home offices, and businesses retooling to make PPE and hand sanitizer. We've seen this type of organization in other disasters, but not with the same unique social distancing pressures that existed at the beginning of the COVID response. I really like this idea of empowering local communities to help be a part of the response and to learn more about what that looks like. We have Matthew Martel, who has his story of caremongering to share with us now. My name is Matthew Martel. I am a student of the uh, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Basically, my background is when I was in high school, I jumped into a competition that's called First Robotics. So I started getting into the tech uh, and the engineering side of things quite heavily. And then after that, when I graduated high school, they actually hired me to come back to some of the schools I worked with and actually help them with organizing the robot competition and stuff. Uh, So basically, when COVID started, I had one of my friends call me because my dad worked at a place where they sell personal protective equipment. And and keep in mind that I, I did not know anything about the medical side of protective equipment. Uh, I knew, you know, if I'm painting, I'm going to use a mask. But other than that, don't know much about it. Uh, so he asked me for N95s. I called my dad. My dad couldn't get any because of the start of pandemic. Nobody could get anything. And then I, call, I called back Jeremy, that the guy that called me. And uh, so I explained to him, you know, everybody's out, you know, even plastic, everybody's out. So, uh, but tell me about the project you're running. And he's like, well, we're... We're, we're just starting and there's um, there's a bunch of us with 3D printers are 3D printing uh, face shields for us. So I was like, hey, that's a great thing. And, you know, at the start, when they started locking everybody down in Quebec and stuff like that, people were like, people wanted to help, but they did not know how to help. And I was the same boat for me. It's like, I cannot go volunteer in a hospital. I'm not trained for that. I don't have any certification, any uh, knowledge for that. But when he told me about a, about the project we were working on, it's like, hey, you know, 3D printer, stuff like stuff that worked with in the past in my robotics background. So he put me in contact with Jordan and Johan, which were the two organizers of that. And we had a meeting with the three of us. And I was like, you know, 
with the stuff I'm doing in robotics, there's a lot of project management comes in. So if you guys need help with the project as a whole, I can jump on the team and start helping them with that. So at the start of pandemic, everybody was looking for open source medical supplies, that's what they call them. So like how to make homemade masks, how to make, uh, there was like sort of competition to make homemade ventilators uh, if, if stuff was going to be that bad. So within the project, um, what they did was face shields because face shields are easy to manufacture with 3D printers. And, you know, there's no liability if you're trying to make a homemade N95 that's a lot more tricky and can be dangerous to a certain point. And the same with ventilators. Not, not to say that it cannot be done, but it, it, it's very tricky. It's very, very difficult. So I started working with them. I originally was supposed to work with them to try to find sponsors because funding was a big issue. But circumstance happened and there was um, supposed to be... Um, an info security convention in Montreal. And they decided to do it online. And on their live stream, they did uh, kind of a crowdfunding for all their listeners for our project. And nobody asked them, nobody knew. They just sprung up, say, hey, they're doing something. Everybody, let's raise money to help them. So we got a good, uh, big influx of money there. We got influx from uh, personal donations. So people were seeing our project. And at some point, we had a, a Facebook page and then after that, a website. That was all volunteers made, stuff like that. So yeah, we started getting funding from that. Um, we did ask uh, all levels of government for help with funding. The problem that we ran into is at the start of pandemic, there was kind of a disconnect between the frontline workers and the government. Um, the government didn't have the information that there was PPE lacking. Uh, whereas uh, we were in contact with, for example, the Quebec Nurse Association every week, and we were receiving briefing from them saying how bad the situation was for the equipment wise. So, you know, talking just about face shield, you know, the, the face shield that you're supposed to put on once and then discard, you had to use them for two weeks, uh, which if you're trying cleaning them, it, it doesn't go well. <laughs> so basically, uh, at that point, we started producing our network expanded. We had some something on like 50 3D printers from different people just churning up parts. Uh, the, the PLA and the PETG, which was the material we were using to actually build the frames, were not that much problematic to source because there was a lot of company that had those. Uh, what was very problematic was the, um, the shield itself, you know, the, the plastic, the clear plastic that basically attached to the frame and covered the face of the, the person that's wearing it. So what was difficult to that is everybody was out because everybody was trying to hoard supplies to build their own. But we found there was a, a company, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head what company it was. They, they basically, their byproduct was a clear film with the thickness we needed. So basically, they were giving us, they gave us their scraps every time, like a couple times a week. And then we were able to use a laser cutter to do our the the part we needed which bring me to at some point you know when you have a lot of people producing you need space and to be able to distribute it to healthcare professionals on the front lines you want stuff to be sterilized you want stuff to be you know ready to go so we needed a um, a clean assembly space which ideally would be a clean room. So at one of the makerspaces called Fulab, they, they had made um, a no-made clean room, which was working decently well, but was kind of small. 
and couldn't accommodate a lot of uh, bigger assembly space. So I reached out to one of my contacts, uh, a guy called Pedro Gregorio, and he works at MDA, which is a satellite manufacturer in Montreal. Uh, and they don't have a clean room medical grade, but they have a clean room space grade for assembling satellites. So I got in contact with Pedro. I asked him, like, you know, hey, we're working on, on that project. Can you help us in any way? Like, I know you have a clean room. So, and he, he took it to the board right away, and the board was jumped on board right away. They even gave us, um, you know, labor time, whereas that their employees would assemble our face shields, seal them in bags. Which was kind of funny because, you know, they're they're not tool to, you know, just make face shield. They're tool to make satellites. So everything is like, you know, even the alcohol you're using to disinfect is like reagent, uh, reagent quality and like all the bags are ESD safe. I think probably the bags, uh, the shields were, were shipping in probably cost more than the shield inside of them. So, yeah, so they started doing assembly for us. We started ramping out, you know, pickups to people that were producing taking the stuff to MDA, and then after that, taking the assembled stuff from MDA and distributing it to whoever needed it. Um, we we had some requests. We couldn't fill all of them because obviously the entire province was needing face shield and our operation couldn't like accommodate that. But we had some requests as far north as some First Nation near uh, James Bay and then as far east as the Madeline Island, which, which was insane to me that they were did they knew about us because it's at the same time where we started doing a bunch of media thing people were running stories about us if you look because we have a website that's called uh, protectioncollective.ca and there's a lot of um, articles about what we did and we even had, we woke up one morning and there was one mp francis carpalagia uh, one federal MP that was talking to us at the uh, at the parliament, and we were like, <laughs> "It's like, wait, we're they're talking about us at the parliament? What?" <laughs> it was a lot of um, a lot of amazing moments, and being in contact with the the frontline the frontline people, you know, nurses. When everything was settled, I took in charge of distribution, and you know, having calls from people say, "Listen, I'm." You know, I work at the COVID center and we're all out of face shield and do a couple of calls, check our stock. And then it's okay, I'm going to have somebody with 200 face shields delivered to you in 30 minutes. You know, that was some, some interaction that I'll never forget. That's incredible story. Uh, a crowdsource, locally funded and produced PPE solution made out of goodwill and scraps um, and the highly technical environment that you had to work in. I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the challenges you had with distribution, getting them to the sites, how you had to decide between requests. And then I'm also wondering, you know, how many did you make? I cannot tell you the uh, the exact number because I don't have it in front of me. And we, we were having a counter on the website, how many we distributed, but that has since broken and it's not up to date, but uh, I'm more than 3000. For distribution's sake, that was... That was rough because that was my part. And we, we had a system where people would fill requests on our website and then saying, talking about a bit of their situation and how, how stuff was going and why they needed it. And, you know, we had to do triage because we couldn't, we couldn't fill everybody's request. So I, I had to assign them, you know, a priority and then walk through the high priority first and then the low priority, you know, when when everything was set, but uh, more often than not, the low priority waited a really long time for us to get back to them. 
because as crappy as it sounds, if a community center is asking me for face shield, but an hospital is asking me for face shield at the same time, I'm going to prioritize the hospital, sadly. So we had trouble also sometimes because as soon as we were making them, as soon as we were making the face shield and having them available, they usually didn't sit more than a day uh, in storage until we, we distribute them. Sometimes they didn't even have time to reach the storage. But basically, yeah, we assigned them a priority, and then I called the person, find out uh, what's going on in their environment. If they're telling me, you know, we're the ER of whatever hospital and we're all out, I usually pull the stops and say, okay, we're sending them now. You know, we, we prioritized hospitals at the start because we thought this was, was going to be the biggest hit, but then it ended up being the uh, long-term care facility for old people. Uh, so we we switched to a focus more on that, still covering the hospitals. Um, but CHSLD, that's what we call them in Quebec, became a big focus after that. Especially, you know, when you're talking to people and you're seeing certain, certain CHSLD on the news that you were just talking to, seeing how bad the situation is, you know, you kind of deal with that. And it was it, it was rough for me to a certain point because I was I, I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared to to deal with triage of that, to deal with, you know, telling somebody, I, I understand that you need equipment, but I don't have enough and I have to prioritize somebody else always hard. So in the production of, of this and the distribution, were there any hurdles you had to overcome? Any certifications or licensing or bureaucratic hurdles? For the bureaucratic side of things, so getting licensed and everything, we actually got licensed fairly quick. So we ended up with a, with an MDEL, which is a medical device establishment license, uh, which is something that uh, you need to do to have your, uh, your product recognized and all that stuff. So we actually managed to get one of those at some point. But the main thing we needed... Because uh, th- they weren't asking us for that. We just did it because I don't, we, we wanted to do it. But usually the people were kind of like, oh, you know, we cannot accept their materials because it's not, you know, kind of the health agency approved. Uh, well, when they, they didn't have anything anymore, now they were more willing to accept our materials. Because um, sometimes there was a nurse that was calling us and then the supervisor would deny the request and all that stuff. So because it wasn't, um, approved by kind of the health agency. Uh, another thing that was problematic for us is we asked for help from the provincial and municipal government, uh, and those requests fall on deaf ear. We we had called with for Montreal the vice mayor and uh, all that stuff, but it never went anywhere. So had we had the uh, the support we requested from the government, we could have had production exponentially bigger than what we ended up doing. So yeah, that was some of the big hurdles. Yes. There was also the uncertainty was a big hurdle too, because at some point it's like, well, how bad is it going to get? You know, are we, you know, we're making facial now, but two months from now, we're going to be stuck making ventilators, you know? So that was a lot, of, a lot of unknowns. Did you ever get a sense of what sort of impact you were having on these sites that needed PPE? There was one case where it, it was apparent. There was a COVID center uh, and I got a call from... Uh, uh, a lady there that's like, listen, you know, I saw your thing uh, on Facebook and, you know, we're, we're, we're all out of everything. Like, can you, can you do something like we need everything? So I, so I listen, I, 
I don't know how much equipment I have, and I don't know if I can deliver to you. That's depend on everything. Says so okay, but anything you can give us, even if it's ten, we're gonna be like we're gonna be happy. And I knew I had a pickup that was going on at the facility we're assembling our fish at NDA. And so I called my driver. I say, listen, you get the pickups. How much they have? I said, yeah, they give us two hundred that they assemble because we had pickup every day there almost. And so I'm like, okay, can you deliver that to uh, that address on the South Shore at that COVID center? So yes, I can be there in 20 minutes. So I hang up with him. I call back the lady and say, uh, hi, ma'am. I can give you 200 face shields in 30 minutes. That person starts breaking down crying because the relief that she had was like, that's like, you know, we're, we're going to help you, you know. Uh, and I, I gave her also the number because there was other organisms that were trying to locate as much PPE as they could, any PPE they could. And I put her in contact with that. I never, I never knew if she actually got other stuff from there. But for us, for me, that was the same times. Okay, we're actually having an impact. Like to have that person starts crying because that's, you know, the government's not helping her. The they can't buy because everybody's out. But we can just deliver another three minutes. Okay, you know, we're going to come. We're going to give you what we have. That was that was a highlight of it. There was also a letter from the, uh, I think, the president of the Quebec Nurse Association that said that in his mind, there's no doubt that our efforts saved lives. And, and you know, it's funny that we talked about this because I, I think I still haven't unpacked that. I still haven't unpacked, you know, the impact we have. Um, there's... Uh, a lot of people, a lot of friends that I had are like, you know, this is so great, blah, blah, blah. But for me, uh, it's like I'm still too close to it and I'm still in it almost. So to me, it was just doing the job. You know, uh, at some point when I said picking up that role for distribution, it was just just doing the job. <laughs> you know, something I found interesting about this is your journey as well. Like you mentioned your background in robotics and having to deal with triage and sort of an emergent uh, disaster situation. How has this crafted your opinion on emergency management or your journey into emergency management? It certainly influenced, you know, my my perception my perception of you know what people can do when disasters strike and when a big emergency uh, start. It, it didn't click with me until I did that project. And you know, you you see, you know, that there's. I was watching a documentary on 9/11. And, you know, there's a guy that just drove a truck with two by fours and plywood a mile away from ground zero, started unloading it with power tools, be like, hey, we're going to start making homemade stretcher for to, to give them because they're going to run out. And those are people who are not coordinated. Those are people who are self-deploying to a disaster area and being just, you know, we want to help. It's the same with a year, a couple of years back where there was that, that big hurricane in Houston. You, know, you had people with boats and uh, jet skis just self-deploying to a disaster area and helping. So it, it changed my mind from, I went into that with a misconception that people were going to be selfish and that they were going to be, you know, you know, we all saw the people hoarding like toilet paper and stuff like that and not wanting to help each other. But it showcased to me that it's not necessarily true. And like more often than not, if you give people a chance to help, they'll take it in a heartbeat. And I had like, we had dozens of volunteers from all stretch of life, regardless of financial status, education, political affiliation, stuff like that. Everybody just put that aside and came together to do that project. And, and to me, it's it's very important that kind of grassroots initiatives like this one, like the one I was part of, are recognized and are being put because I think they can be a force multiplier in, the, in time of disasters. 
especially with you know at the start of a disaster you know everything thing got to be you know control well not controlled but you know you cannot start having somebody making bootleg N95 and then giving them to your healthcare worker but for stuff that is like a face shield that is easy to make 100% you know leveraging your your community can help and i, I think i think it's it's the strength when there's a disaster is the community you know your community is going to help you clean up your community is going to help you get through this you know there, there was some facebook page of people it's like hey listen i'm immunocompromised my and we're all locked down but my dog still needs to get walked you know and it was people volunteering to walk the dog and go do groceries for them and stuff like that so it, it really changed my perspective from people are going to be selfish and just not going to do anything going to do their own interest to wow people can actually come together and we're together to get through this and, and it's not if, if i can say something just work quick you know I'm talking about this, but we had really an incredible team of volunteers. We, we had people printing stuff 24-7. That There was one guy, Jonah, that I remember. The guy has a farm of 3D printer uh, for his work, and that guy would not sleep sometimes at night just churning our production, stuff like that. So really, really, the credit's not to me, but my volunteers that were getting out and even putting themselves at risk to go in a CHSLD that is uh, ridden with COVID and go deliver, go, you know, do that and the, those those were the people i think that deserve recognition it was easy for me to be a dispatcher but for those people they, they actually went in and you know got in contact and put themselves at risk of getting covid i, I think they're they're the ones that it needs to be recognized more more than i do matthew that's an incredible story thank you for all you and your team did turning this incredible uh, talent and this technical niche into an important disaster function. And thank you for coming on the podcast. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A huge thanks to Matthew Martel for sharing his story and his experience with us on the topic of caremongering. Happy Emergency Preparedness Week, and thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by ATB Financial. ATB Carers is a platform that allows you to donate and have your donation matched by ATB to further your impact. ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to Alberta, non-religious charities, uh, to an annual limit of $360,000. Eligible charities may receive up to $5,000 in matching per year. Individual donations qualify for a maximum donation match of $500, and donors automatically receive electronic tax receipts. Find out more at atb.ca. This episode was also brought to you in part by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Book Woman. Book Woman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. A proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. 
The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.